Chapter 2 A Wayside Adventure It was nearly noon on the following day when Shasta was wakened by something warm and soft moving over his face. He opened his eyes and found himself staring into the long face of a horse. Its nose and lips were almost touching his. He remembered the exciting events of the previous night and sat up, but as he did so, he groaned. Ow, Bree, he gasped. I'm so sore. All over. I can hardly move. I'm Bethy, and this is Katie. Welcome to For Narnia and For Aslan. Together, we're exploring the horse and his boy. And in chapter two, Bree and Shasta travel for weeks. And during that time, they become friends, train Shasta to ride, and make a good pattern for travel and rest together. However, this is interrupted one night when they're chased by lions right into the path of another talking horse and a runaway Tarquina, who agrees to join Bree and Shasta. This book is moving right along. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. I definitely thought this was like halfway through the book. For real, we've met our other two characters. I know. I'm so impressed with how Lewis keeps the adventure moving along without us like getting bored, but it still has a feeling of huge scope to it. Well, they've already traveled for weeks and weeks. But like, I guess there's nothing to tell. It's just more of these great days of riding. Right. Like, honestly, I was really surprised to hear that they've already gone for weeks and weeks. And I thought that it was bold of him to just not even tell us very much about that time. Oh, so cool. I feel really jealous of Shasta. He's leaving behind a world that he never really had a place in. Isn't it awesome that like he didn't have anything and now he has a friend and he eats food that he has chosen and the air is sweet. There's just like so many shifts that happen. And it's not that he has a new home or anything now, but that's the perfect frame to be in for an adventure. Yeah. Can you imagine what that would be like to grow up with this person who mostly just like yelled at you or ignored you and then all of a sudden you have this friend who has these cool stories that you're asking about with the wars mm. and you just like are together all the time. Right, nonstop, like riding together. He's on his back. Yeah. And that is interesting that Bree kind of is a mentor figure for him. They're not quite on the same footing. Yeah, and we have a lot of development with Bree's character. What did you notice about that in this chapter? Oh, man. So Bree, he's a very specific horse. He is definitely the leader of this operation. He's the one who decides where they're going. I mean, even in the first chapter, we learned that Shasta's never supposed to use the reins. And he's kind of pushy. He's kind. But like in the morning, Bree has to kind of kick Shasta around until he wakes up. <laughs> it says he nuzzles him with his nose and paws him gently with a hoof. That's nice. But it's also very in charge. <laughs> yeah. Shasta does not get to choose. No. <laughs> and Bree's the one who figures out about breakfast. He's the one who decides it's not stealing to use the money that's in the saddlebags. And then we get this interesting moment where Bree is having a roll on his back. It's most refreshing. And Shasta laughs. And he's suddenly anxious. He is, because Shasta laughs at him for looking funny. And Bree's like, no, I don't. But then he's like, oh, no, do I? Does it really look funny in an anxious voice? And he's so worried that maybe he's doing all these dumb, like, not talking horse things. And Shasta's like, who cares? I love that response. But he's really, he's mm -hmm. anxious enough that he's like, what do you think, Shasta? Honestly, now, don't spare my feelings. Do you think real free horses, the talking kind, do roll? <laughs> right. Don't spare my feelings. Oh, my goodness. I feel like I really connect with Bree in that way of just, like, the self-consciousness 
Yeah. Just worrying what other people think. Right. Which honestly fits his life as a war horse. He's supposed to be so special. He's got to have this really high image of himself. And he does. But really, even later on, he says, I'm ashamed of myself. Mm. Yeah, for being scared of lions. I shouldn't be scared of anything. So much high expectation. Poor guy. I know. (laughs) Gotta get over it, man. I also feel like we get a little bit of his background for a moment when he says that they can't go into cultivated land and main roads because he wouldn't know the way. Oh, right. Like, he's been to Tashban before. But isn't that weird that his Tarkhan only went this back way? I don't think they're going a back way. I think they're going right through the city, but that's different than, like, cultivated land, like, that they're growing grapes and wheat and whatever they're growing. Okay, that makes sense. I guess a Tarkhan doesn't need to go hang out with farmers. No, why would he? (laughs) He's way better than that. Whereas going to Tashban would be the capital. Maybe they would assemble near there for military something. I don't know. Hmm. I don't actually know how military stuff works. Least of all cavalry. (laughs) Well, this land is way bigger than I thought that it was. They've been traveling for so long and they're still not to the capital. That's a good point. Throughout the book, we'll get the impression that this is the dominant power in the region. That Narnia, in comparison, is just a tiny little northern country on the border. That's also a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. Well, in this chapter, as you pointed out, we meet our two other main characters. And, Bethy, I'm curious what you're noticing. We've got two human characters and two talking horses now. What are you noticing about the way that the two species are relating? Normally, we don't get cross-species relationships as the main relationships in a book. (laughs) True. Well, there's two spots in this chapter that stood out to me when it comes to the cross-species relationship. (laughs) And one was the moment where Bree says that Shasta didn't steal him. You might as well say that Bree stole Shasta. Right. And then later on, Erebus says, why do you keep talking to my horse instead of me? And Bree (laughs) says, excuse me, Tarkina. With just the slightest backward tilt of his ears. I love that. (laughs) But that's Kalorman talk. We're free Narnians, Wynn and I. And I suppose if you're running away to Narnia, you want to be one too. In that case, Wynn isn't your horse any longer. One might just as well say that you're her human. (laughs) He advocates for himself. He really does. I'm impressed, actually, after years and years of not saying a single word and being in hiding, he's so bold about knowing his equality with humans. I wonder if it helped that he was a war horse rather than like a workhorse or something. Oh, I think it must have because he already has kind of that high ego and the ability to stand up for himself. Like Mm -hmm. Quinn wasn't about to say anything. Right. You're right. But she's so appreciative when Bree does, Mm -hmm. which is great. It seems harder for Erebus than for Shasta to admit to the horses being their equals, at least at first. Well, I think that in that case, it's the exact same thing as the horses, but opposite. Shasta Hmm. is already used to being spoken down to, just like Quinn. And Erebus is already used to being spoken up to, just like Bree. And giving the orders. Yeah, you're right. So for her not to be the main character is a big (laughs) jolt. (laughs) It's a complicated moment. And we see that between the humans, too, when Shasta says, just come out and admit that you don't think I'm good enough for you. And when he says, well, it's only a girl, and she said, well, you're only a boy and probably a slave. Right. There's just so much about rank and station in this chapter. Fascinating the way they come together then, although we're going to talk about that a bit in our scripture reading. Oh, good. 
Well, before we do that, just one more thought about this. One of the ways that I make a living is by teaching children how to dance. Hmm. I also do dance with me parent classes. Hmm. So the parent will show up with their child and they'll dance together. And that is one of the only times that I've ever experienced someone choosing to speak to the child the whole time instead of the parent when oh. there's an interaction between a few people and a parent and child. Interesting. Do the parents adjust to that well? I think it's odd for them at first. Hmm. It's pretty unusual for me to just address only the parents. I do it probably three times per class total. The rest of the time, I'm talking to the kids as if they are the higher status. Huh. Yeah. The focus is on them. And it feels really different. Interesting. And it's definitely the comparison that I drew in my own life. That makes sense. Why do you keep talking to my kid instead of to me? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. All that to say, once Bree does advocate for himself and Huynh, the book says, the girl opened her mouth to speak and then stopped. Obviously, she had not quite seen it in that light before. <laughs> to her credit, she is willing to learn this new way. It is impressive that from this point on, we feel a shift. Towards the horses. I'm not sure if it happens yet towards Shasta. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Shasta hasn't advocated for himself yet fully. That's true. And I think, at least for Erebus, he needs to prove himself as well, not just advocate. Fun characters, this chapter. Yeah. Our sacred reading practice today is Pardes, which is the Jewish practice of viewing a text like an orchard, where you're walking along and you pick an apple and every bit of the text matters. So we are going to choose a sentence at random and pick it apart with Pardes, which is a four-step practice. So Katie, will you do me the favor of kind of thumbing through without looking and mm -hmm. putting a finger on a sentence and seeing what you get? <laughs> okay. So this sentence comes when the humans and horses have all met each other and Shasta's trying to put on grand manners, it says, and he half knew that it wasn't a success and then became silkier and more awkward than ever. Oh, poor Shasta. <laughs> I know, this poor kid. <laughs> That's a devastating moment. <laughs> I hate that. Uh, it's like not knowing what fork to use and everyone else does and they know you don't know. Yes, and you're just being looked at and no one's going to say anything. and uh, It's horrible. And they're definitely judging you. They're not like <laughs> smiling. Right. So if we have the same page numbers, for me, it's 35. Oh, yep, we do. Yes. <laughs> so the first step of Pardes is pshat, which is looking at the basic meaning and what's surrounding it, which we've already kind of done. But what else is going on in this section? Well, they've both unsaddled their horses so they can have a rest after that exciting chase from the lions. And it says Erevis produced rather nice things to eat from her saddlebag. But Shasta sulked and said no thanks and that he wasn't hungry. <laughs> and he tries to put on his manners. It says, but if, as a fisherman's hut is not usually a good place for learning grand manners, the result was dreadful. I'm very curious what it is that he tried to do. Like if I there know. was a certain way that he tried to sit mm. or like certain words he tried to use, but he couldn't pronounce them correctly. Or like the tone of voice, like I'm picturing when Arshish and the Tarkhan were talking. Oh, yeah. He's trying to imitate that kind of thing. Which, of course, Erevis is about to do very well because she's then asked to tell their story. She knows that world inside and out. 
Isn't it interesting? This is kind of a side note, but last mm-hmm. chapter felt like it was being told in that special storytelling way. Right. This chapter kind of fell into the normal Narnia book feel. I agree. And then this coming chapter, we're going to get a story again. An actual storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. And I love how it talks about Erebus sitting and how they learn how to tell stories in school. We'll get that in our last paragraph, I guess. Yes, I love that section. <laughs> All right, so the next step is remez, and that is when we pick one word to focus on, and we just dive deeply into it, and we pull from other texts, we pull from our culture. How Mm. much can we learn from just one word? So what word stands out to you in this sentence? Sulkier. Oh, good one. (laughs) Okay, so when we think of sulkiness or sulkier, (laughs) what do we think? I think of a kid who just won't be satisfied no matter how you try to help them, what you offer them to eat. If you're offering them to play this or that, they just have something in their mind about being unhappy and they they have to hold on to it. Right. There's absolutely no way to console. And it makes everybody else unhappy too. Yeah, it makes everyone uncomfortable. I also think of myself being sulky when I'm, I don't know, I'm just in a mood and I kind of feel like I owe it to myself not to like change the subject and feel happy again, Mm. which is ridiculous because that doesn't help me. Well, that's a funny thing about sulk is that it hangs around in the air. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this loyalty to my past angst. Yeah. Your past emotion deserves as much attention as you can get, even though you don't currently feel it. I also think of the Israelites grumbling in the desert. Mm. They've just been saved from slavery. And they're like, you took us here to die. We're going to die from hunger and thirst. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good example. Oh, and then later on in these books, we're going to meet a character who's very sulky named Eustace. Okay, Eustace. I was thinking about him too. Yeah. Everyone's trying to help him as much as possible to enjoy their adventure, and he won't have it. Mm -mm. Which is interesting here because, I mean, just taking our small context, I've been feeling badly for Shasta here. But being sulky is not really useful at all. No, it's something you put on yourself. Mm-hmm. It's one of those emotions that you suffer twice for it. You feel something in the first place and then it yep. lingers. Yep. You let it take on its own life. Because I could picture Shasta, you know, the way he was with Bree. He doesn't mind learning and being wrong and falling and having to get up. No, not at all. He's really got a refreshing simplicity. But with Erebus, it's not that way. I wonder why specifically with Erebus. Well, one thing is I think Bree is so obviously a leader and has earned that position just through his own claim of it that Shasta doesn't mind like falling into second string behind him. Yeah. But with somebody his own age who's a girl, that chafes. And well, he can the get class over that. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, the class thing does make it more complicated. Because he feels that she doesn't think he's good enough. Whereas from Bree, oh, he thinks I don't know anything, but I don't. And he's a horse and I'm a human. There's no comparison. Right. There's comparison here. Also, I mean, he just entered into the happiest time of his entire life. And it's about to shift. And that is worth grieving. Mm, That makes sense. Transitions are hard. Transitions are hard. And I'm not going to say that sulking is the best form of grief and transition, but I get why he does it. I do too. (laughs) All right, our next step is drosh, which is if you were to preach a sermon about this sentence, what would you say? And again, our sentence is, and he half knew that it wasn't a success and then became sulkier and more awkward than ever. Mm, I think it would have to be something for me about 
how we respond to failure and whether we cling to it and let it drive us or open ourselves to grace and just laugh and say, okay, I failed. God, you've got this. Let's try again. Mm -hmm. This is something I've been learning a lot recently is, okay, if I'm really messing something up, like that's exactly the moment that faith is all about is turning to God and letting him have the reins, as it were. <laughs> what a pun. <laughs> yeah, I just realized I'm glad that came up in this book. I wasn't thinking about it. <laughs> Rather than saying, oh, I have to fix it. I'm not able to fix it. Life is awful. This is so hard. These are unfair demands, which for the record is my usual response. <laughs> but working on allowing something different, some fresh grace in the room. I like that. Hmm. I think mine would have more of a focus on the idea of half knowing something. Ooh. How we can respond to that with either curiosity or awkwardness and sulkiness. Right. And I think a lot of times we half know a lot of things. Like our gut instinct is strong. And these are things we can push against and ignore and get upset about. Or we can really explore them and figure them out. I love that. Thanks. All right. Our last step is sewed, which is the idea that this text has a secret for us. And if we listen, we might be able to hear it whispered to us. Hmm. So I'll read our text, and then we'll take a moment to just sit in silence and see if there's a whisper. And sometimes a sowed comes, and sometimes it doesn't. Okay. And he half knew that it wasn't a success, and then became sulkier and more awkward than ever. I have a sewed. Do you? You do. No, I don't. Okay. Let's hear yours. So earlier, Brie felt really awkward and anxious. <gasps> oh, yeah. And Shasta said, I wouldn't care about it if I were you. <laughs> and here he doesn't take his own advice. Instead, he becomes even sulkier and even more awkward than ever. Yeah. So I guess my sewed is take your own advice. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love this look at his character. He's got yeah. this freedom about him, this ability to just be happily naive and learning. Mm -hmm. And he's got this tendency to try and have it together and doesn't know how. And yeah. that's all part of him. Thanks for doing Pardes with me. Thank you. This was really fun. I'm glad we landed on this verse, I was going to say, on this sentence. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Well, we're going to go to the book of Jonah. Ooh. I thought about this because of the chase scene, the crisis that comes. And right now I'm reading a book called Under the Unpredictable Plant, which is by Eugene Peterson, and it's about being a pastor. Hmm. And he just was talking about storms and how when a storm comes, whatever else you were focused on before, now you're not. You're focused on whether you're going to live or die, whether you're going to be saved or not. And I think that's what happens when we meet the lions. So let's go to the book of Jonah. We're going to read all of Jonah chapter one. It's a long reading, 17 verses. So just sit back and listen and enjoy it. And we're especially listening for the way that God uses a storm to get somebody's attention. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish 
to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own god, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your god. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Wow. <laughs> I saw so much similarity. <laughs> what did you notice? Well, with someone running away, that's mm -hmm. a pretty obvious one. But then the storm just getting worse and worse with first there's one lion. Okay, I think we got away. Then there's right. a second lion. Oh my gosh, now there's two lions chasing us at the same time. And then they get thrown into the sea. And mm. Shasta gets a mouthful of salt water as they that's swim right. away. Oh, you're right. Even the setting. <laughs> I had just been thinking of like metaphorical connections, but you're right. It's the same story. <laughs> It's definitely also the lions, just like the Lord in this story, are getting the character's attention. Mm. Up till now, Bree and Shasta have been trying to avoid this other horse and rider. And it looks like the other horse and rider are doing the same thing. And for some reason or other, after the lions, they're thrown together and they have to deal with each other. And that's what's happening to Jonah here is he's been going his own way. And after the storm, he has to deal with God. Chapter two is completely Jonah praying to God for forgiveness. Hmm. A storm feels like a horrible calamity, but it's actually the best thing that could have happened to Jonah right here because his life is wandering away from its source. And I'd say in our chapter, that's true, too. The lions are the best thing that could have happened to our characters, at least if it turns out to be a good thing that they travel together. And I have hope that it will be. And I think that often, not always, but often the same thing can be said for our faith. Hmm that we are brought to our knees in prayer more often in the more difficult times than mm. in the easy times. Yeah, I think that's true. And of course, there are storms that are part of chaos. 
but there are also storms that are of our own making, which is what Jonah's was. He Mm. brought this upon himself. And when that happens, it's good for the results to start catching up to you because then you turn around. What do you think of the idea of God causing storms in our lives? Well, I think it's certainly dangerous to look at somebody's storm and say, God must be causing that or especially God must be punishing you. To assume that. To assume that, right. But that doesn't mean it can't happen also because it happens right here. It says the Lord sent the storm and Jonah also 100% knows this is my fault. This is because I'm running away from the Lord. And I think in our lives, they both happen. Sometimes there are storms that are storms and God is our shield and our comfort and promises to undo the chaos one day and turn it into new creation. But there are also storms like, well, in this book, the example was this pastor is trying to turn his calling into just a religious career. I mean, he's he's getting caught up in meetings and details and being the best at everything. And it turns into a storm when his kid says, you haven't been home for 38 nights in a row. Whoa. <laughs> right? And it's a wake-up call and he has to turn his life around. And so that's a storm of his own creation, and it's good when it turns into waves and God brings it to a head because it allows the root cause to unravel. It allows him to see it and repent of it. So then in your opinion, how can we tell the difference between a storm that is brought on by God and a storm that's brought on by chaos? Oh, gosh, (laughs) that's so hard. That's like the ultimate question. I mean, I guess in some ways, like to Jonah, it was obvious, and some storms are obvious. You know, if your life is turning into chaos because of an addiction you have. You can see the source. You know where the storm comes from and what has to happen to turn it around, like Mm -hmm. in Jonah's case. Or not just addiction. Of course, there are lots of things where we can see, yep, I'm the one causing this. Right. But if you're not sure, I don't know if it's actually necessary to know. What do you think, Bethy? Because the response is the same. Either way, it's turn to the Lord. Yeah, that's actually a really good point because I was thinking of like cancer. Right. And my automatic thought is like, of course, God didn't cause that. God is a God of healing. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't take a horrible thing that is causing suffering and bring beauty through it. Right. God can bring redemption out of garbage. Right. So I guess you're right. I guess that's not the thing that matters. What matters is what God does with it. Mm -hmm. And whether you're turning to the Lord to say, like, to repent or to say, help me, it's the same turn either way. Mm. And either way, that's the way forward. Yeah. It's easy to say in the middle of dry land, but maybe when we're in storms ahead, we can think of this conversation and and remember. Yeah, because I guess one question that I often have is like, why, Lord, why? Mm -hmm. But maybe the right question or maybe a better question would be... What next, Lord? Yeah, that's amazing. Back to that whole idea of curiosity Mm. over sulkiness. Yes. Wow. And sulkiness feels so justified in the midst of suffering. Absolutely. But it still is its own problem that doesn't help us. I think in the Jonah story, it's the sailors who really get this, not Jonah. Totally. They're so smart. And they even like, they respect this God that they've never worshipped before. Right. And they ask for God's forgiveness. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. They, they make have such strong faith. It's crazy. That's, to me, the best thing in Jonah, or a wonderful thing in Jonah, is how all the pagans, the Ninevites and these sailors and everybody, go head over heels to worship God while Jonah, the prophet, is <laughs> running away and sulking. <laughs> I think it's put in there to be a bit funny. Yeah. 
Do you have a life circumstance that we can workshop today? I do. Yeah, the workshop that I need is we moved to Tennessee over a year ago now, and we've said because of COVID, we haven't picked a church yet. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't know that that's actually truth or if that's an excuse, and that's Mm. not necessarily the workshop I'm bringing, although it could be what we end up talking about. Bethy, you brought it up. (laughs) (laughs) But my question is, I guess, what's next, Lord? You know, like... Mm, It's a great question. We had such good churches. Before I was working at a church, we went to a wonderful one that we loved. And Mm. then I started working for a church in Washington, and we loved that one so much. Mm. And so it's been really hard to kind of let go of the idea of what church is supposed to look like in this new place and to just commit to going to a new one. And at the same time, you know, COVID adds complications. Right. Anyway, I just wondered what wisdom can be brought by the horse and his boy. I think this is a really good chapter for that because you already mentioned how Shasta has just had the best time of his life riding with Bree across Kalorman. And then everything's about to change because they run into this other party. And that's really hard for him. There's grief over accepting something new. Even though it's going to be good. It is going to be good. And the same with the storm. You know, God's turning Jonah around for a reason because there's something better for him in Nineveh than out in Tarshish. But it doesn't mean that there's not that invitation to sit and want what was before and have a lot of resistance to moving forward. Yeah. That makes it sound simple. It's not simple. Well, it is beautifully Maybe it's simple. It's just not easy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think that's what it is. I think it's simple, not easy. Mm. And I would prefer that, honestly, because I think that the more challenging things in life are the most worth doing. Yeah. Have we talked on this podcast about your birthday questions? No, I don't think we have. What have you discovered about challenging things and good things? Well, a question that I like to ask people on their birthday is what was the most challenging thing about this past year of life and what was the best thing about this past year of life? And sometimes people will give me a different answer for each one, but a vast majority of the time people give the same answer for both questions. So fascinating. It's so cool. And encouraging, right, when you're in the face of something that seems challenging. When we're in the storm. Right. That can end up being the best thing to happen to you. But it's a lot harder to see that if we're busy sulking. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So what's next, Bethy? Uh, I think what's next is it's time to try out this church that's just two minutes away from our house. That's a good step. Church is so weird. It's so not cute. (laughs) No. And it's scary to try out a new church. And not know what it is that they're going to be talking about or Mm. back to the whole idea of like, what do people think of me? Oh, yes. But I think it's time to try it out. That's good. And that means, you know, if God's already working to do that, of course, God's going to be there in the in the hard thing ahead. True. Paving the way, even if it involves lions yelling at you from either side. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oh, That's what I just love, love in this book is how Aslan works without Shasta doing anything to invite it. Yes, he's so mysterious in this one and Mm -hmm. fierce. Ugh, and providential. (laughs) It's probably the most Presbyterian book. (laughs) 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 Just kidding. (laughs) At last, Bree said, And now, Tarkina, 
Tell us your story. And don't hurry it. I'm feeling comfortable now. Erebus immediately began, sitting quite still and using a rather different tone and style from her usual one. For in Kalorman, storytelling, whether the stories are true or made up, is a thing you're taught, just as English boys and girls are taught essay writing. The difference is that people want to hear the stories, whereas I never heard of anyone who wanted to read the essays. <laughs> well, friends, the hour has struck. We'll see you next week with Chapter 3 of The Horse and His Boy. Are we going to call her Erevis or Aravis? Mm, I've always said Erevis. Um, okay. Let's do Erevis. Okay. <laughs>